For the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show, we're going to be exploring a most intriguing question. What would it feel like to be the President of the United States, arguably the most powerful person in all the world, and then to be President no longer? How would one find meaning, purpose, fulfillment, happiness, uh, when one is no longer President? There are very few people who can answer that question from direct experience, and it is those who have held the office and now live on as former presidents. Their experience is explored in a fascinating new book by Kate Anderson Brower titled Team of Five, The President's Club in the Age of Trump. The title Team of Five refers to the five men who, at the time Kate Anderson Brower began writing her book, were our living ex-presidents, Jimmy Carter, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama. By the time she finished her book, George H.W. Bush had died. Her book is not only an exploration of what these five individual men have experienced, but is also an exploration of their relationships with each other, of this so-called club, President's Club, uh, which they comprise, and of how, in at least some cases, surprisingly warm friendships have developed over time, despite vast differences in philosophy, party affiliation, belief of policy, background, personality, uh, all differences that uh, might have made a friendship highly unlikely under other circumstances. But because these men share the common experience of having been president, uh, at least to some extent, those differences have often been superseded and replaced by friendship and admiration and respect. Kate Anderson Brower explores this and also sets this in contrast with our current president, Donald Trump, who, of course, calls himself proudly a different kind of president, one, in her words, unconcerned with tradition and unhindered by established norms of behavior. And the way that he has spoken out so critically of his predecessors is uh, one way in which he puts himself very much at odds with them. And she explores the question of whether or not Donald Trump will find a comfortable place in this so-called President's Club once he leaves office. The book also explores some historical context as well, which I very much welcomed. The book, once again, is titled Team of Five, The President's Club in the Age of Trump, published by HarperCollins. Kate Anderson Brower, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you for having me. I so appreciate this book, and I have to say that it turned out to be a far richer book than I even expected it to be. I mean, I had fairly high expectations just from the the title and knowing what it was about, but uh, reading it, it turned out to be, uh, again, a a, a far richer experience and a more complex story than I really expected it to be. I wonder for you as the author, uh, as you explored the lives and especially the relationships of our former presidents, uh, did this turn out to be a more complicated and rich story than you expected at the outset? It did. I mean, looking at these uh, presidents as, as real human beings and the devastation that they face when they lose an election, I mean, you can look at uh, Gerald Ford when he lost to Jimmy Carter, and then the friendship that 
Carter and Ford specifically develop later in life. And you could say the same for George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. Then moving beyond the politics and getting at the humanity of these people, I thought was um, a little more emotional than I thought it would be, really. And I think it's important now more than ever to kind of see people as, as three-dimensional uh, human beings, and that's what I hope to do in this book. You did that so very, very well. I also appreciated that uh, that the first chapter of the book, which is called The Peaceful Transfer of Power, uh, is here to give us kind of an, an, an intriguing context for much of what follows in the book. And essentially in this book, you take us behind the scenes of Inauguration Day, when one family, in a sense, leaves the White House and another family uh, replaces them. And uh, you say at one point, though it may look like a peaceful ceremony, it is complete havoc behind the scenes back at the White House. Uh, Tell us more about this and, and also why you thought it was important to include so much information about Inauguration Day and what occurs behind the scenes. Well, that's one of my favorite parts of writing about the White House, is that one specific day. Because when I was researching my book, The Residents, which is about the maids and the butlers and the resident staff at the White House, they described this day where everyone's eyes are trained on the Capitol and the swearing-in ceremony of the new president. But what goes on behind the scenes at the White House is controlled chaos, they call it, where they are moving a new family in and the other family they've served for years out. It's very emotional. Uh, Presidents and first ladies are often in tears saying goodbye to the staff in the state dining room the morning they leave. Um, And it's actually a great question because one of the reasons why I decided to write this book was thinking about the helicopter as it takes off from the Capitol on Inauguration Day, and it takes the President and the First Lady, who are outgoing, um, to Andrews Air Force Base, and they get on a plane to wherever they are going. In the Obama's case, they went on vacation in Palm Springs, but sometimes they go directly home, as the Bushes did, to Dallas. And, you know, what, or Crawford, rather, what what goes on in their minds as they're circling the White House? Because usually the helicopter will circle the White House and give them one last look at the home they lived in. And it's a home. You know, we think of it as the world's most famous private home. And uh, just the emotions that are swirling around them. And then how do you cope with life after being the most uh, powerful person in the world? And uh, I think that's that's something that they all struggle with. Hmm. One of my favorite moments in this chapter is uh, when you quote uh, Lady Bird Johnson, of course, uh, the wife of Lyndon Baines Johnson, and uh, you describe the moment when uh, they return to Texas, her first time back as a private citizen, uh, only to find mountains of luggage piled up with no one from the enormous White House staff in sight to help. And uh, you quote her saying, the chariot had turned into a pumpkin and all the mice have run away. <laughs> so even, I, I mean, of course... I mean, that's just, you know, welcome to the real world, welcome to real life. But in a sense, that is a corollary for all of the other ways in which their life has suddenly changed in so many profound and and often wrenching ways. Yeah, and I think um, George W. Bush, when he became president, I interviewed Laura Bush, and she had said that, 
he was uh, very upset about having a valet. And so we've been hearing about the valet now because one of them tested positive, actually, in this White House. But this is somebody who dresses the president in very close contact with the president. And um, and Bush, George W. Bush said, I don't want someone dressing me. I, I don't need that. And his father, George H.W. Bush, said, oh, trust me, son, you'll get used to it. And they get used to having people... Uh, catering to them. I mean, they are never really alone. They have to dismiss the butlers on the second floor of the White House to be alone. And then to suddenly find yourself home, Barbara Bush tells a great story of making, um, uh, going to Sam's Club and getting a big vat of spaghetti, and then she had a jar and it crashed and fell on the floor and was everywhere. And just kind of the sense that, yes, this is real life for all of us, and it's hard to feel sorry for people who have been catered to for so long, but I think it's interesting. I mean, how do you how do you go back to a normal life? Hmm. I don't think you ever can. Right. You make a very uh, interesting point uh, at the top of the second chapter of the book, which is called The Unwritten Rules of the Club. And the club refers to that small group of, well, so far only men, but that yes. small group of, of men who are living ex-presidents, and uh, they are part of this very small group who uh, who have known firsthand what it is uh, to be the most powerful person in the free world. Uh, you draw an intriguing contrast that I've never stopped to think about until I read your book, and that is the difference between our presidents, our ex-presidents, and the ex-leaders of, of, other, of other countries. You say, in Europe and the United Kingdom, there is generally a sense that when politicians are out of office, they should recede politely and quietly into their private lives. But American presidents are larger than life and often polarizing personalities who are unknowable in part because of the enormous power they wield. So when they leave office, the shine never wears off completely. And if they are being completely honest, none of them want it to. Uh, I had really never stopped to think about that. And I also am curious if you think that has always been the case, or if that is more of a modern phenomenon, that that ex-presidents retain a, a great deal of stature and significance compared to the ex-leaders of, of other countries. I think it's always been the case in this country, which is kind of ironic as a democracy, that we, we hold our presidents up um, on a pedestal and we... Uh, we look at them as celebrities, and I think if you look at the prime minister um, in England and prime minister's questions, which I love watching on TV late at night on C-SPAN, you know, you can see uh, members pelting the prime minister with questions in a way that you don't see members of Congress here uh, getting to question any president. And so I think that we have put them on this pedestal, so it makes them really unknowable in a lot of ways. And I, I think... And you haven't mentioned President Trump, and I know he's so polarizing, but it's he is somebody who um, directly communicates in a way that no other president has. I mean, he uses Twitter in such a way that he's not really on that pedestal, and I think people who like him really like that about him, that there's he's more knowable than any other modern president um, in, in history, I think. Right. And yes, there is this unvarnished communication of what he is thinking and feeling, and yes, I think that is for those who support him, uh, it is uh, it is one of the things they like most about him, and it's also one of the the ways in which he is 
set apart already from those who have come before him, and he doesn't seem to mind that. I mean, in a sense, this is all about breaking the mold and shattering the expectations. Well, so I I interviewed him in the Oval Office, and I said to him, are you... Uh, do you have more uh, empathy for the men who came before you, having sat in this job for years? And he said no. He was handed a terrible economic situation, and he went on to, you know, list his, um, you know, concerns about George W. Bush's foreign policy. But I, I think, and then I also asked him if he has trouble sleeping, as a lot of former presidents have. You know, Nixon famously wandered the halls of the White House and talked to the portraits of the other presidents and. Um, and he said, no, uh, you know, he sleeps fine. Now, I don't know, you know, uh, there's always a sense of, you know, you're not sure how truthful people are being, but I think Trump is pretty honest. And I think that he says what he means, which I think people, as you say, do like. Um, and I asked him if he thinks he'll fit into the President's Club. And he kind of laughed and said, you know, well, what do you think? Like, of course not, you know. And the question, as I asked it, almost sounded absurd because, of course, he won't fit into the club. But it's just so shocking when, you know, I I said, would you go to President Obama's uh, presidential library opening? And he said, no, why would he even invite me? And I just think so much has changed in the club because one of the unspoken rules, the key rule that you were mentioning, is not to criticize your predecessors um, publicly. And that's what Jimmy Carter got in trouble for doing and has been ostracized from time to time from the club. And, And President Trump criticizes them all the time. And for people who like him, that's a real asset because he says what he thinks. But for people who don't, it's a real break with civility I think that we've come to accept and expect from the former president. We're speaking with Kate Anderson Brower about her brand new book, which is called Team of Five, The President's Club in the Age of Trump. I want to make sure that people understand that this book is primarily about, uh, well, at the time you began writing the book, it was five living ex-presidents, mm. the two Bushes, Clinton, Carter, and Obama, and, and of course, now President H.W. Bush has since died, and uh, so it is uh, now, a, in a sense, a team of four. But your book does actually, from time to time, step farther back in time, which I also really appreciate. And you tell us some stories of, of ex-presidents and some of their, their struggles that, that I found qu- quite intriguing. Um, for instance, I just want us to touch for a moment on the, the story of Herbert Hoover, who, of course, uh, was president uh, when the stock market crashed and the Great Depression began. And, of course, he was swept out of office in the landslide victory of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And one of the things you talk about in your book is the way President Roosevelt treated President Hoover and the way President Truman, Roosevelt's successor, treated Hoover and, in a sense, rehabilitated his standing. I wonder if you could just uh, just talk for a moment about this, and in particular, why you found this to be a significant story worth sharing within the context of your book. Well, I was I was very touched by what President Truman said about Hoover, and he said when he invited him to the White House, it had been the first time he had been there. Hoover had set foot in the White House since he was president, and. Um, you know, tears came to his eyes. It was the first time anybody had paid attention to him in years. And I think 
the frustration that Hoover had. You know, he was uh, very involved in, in World War One. He wanted to be an asset in World War Two. He wanted to help, and FDR did not want his help. And at one point, he said something like, oh, "What am I going to do? Wake the dead?" When somebody suggested that he ask Hoover for help. Um, and Hoover, you know, had, had written and told people that he he was often volunteering to help, and FDR just refused. And FDR even renamed the Hoover Dam the Boulder Dam, and Truman went da- back and changed the name back to the Hoover Dam. So there was a lot of deep-seated animosity between these two men, and I was just struck by that because I think we always, I always think of what's going on now as the most you know, vitriol-filled, anger-filled time, um, partisanship at a kind of high we've never seen before. But, you know, there have been times in history when there have been very bitter elections and very and former presidents who have no relationship with the sitting president whatsoever. So I thought it put Trump in context a little bit. And I think getting into the history is important for people to remember you know, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson didn't speak for years until they famously reconciled. Teddy Roosevelt ran against his hand-picked successor, William Howard Taft. I mean, just putting a little history in there to kind of ground the reader, I think, is important. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and in some respects, what we're talking about with this team of five, of these particular ex-presidents, Bush and Bush and Obama and Clinton and Carter, is that, uh, with an exception or two, certainly, uh, the relationship that they have enjoyed has been quite extraordinary. And uh, and we should not immediately assume that uh, back in the 1840s, James Monroe and Martin Van Buren were, were <laughs> enjoying a, a similar sort of right. sense of bond or whatever it might be. Uh, but it is a very special relationship that has developed between a number of these men. And one of the main points of your book is that often it is uh, very surprising friendships that it it might be a Democrat and a Republican ex-president who become extremely close, whereas two Democrats uh, might uh, might uh, mm. have 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 much frostier relationship than we might experience. Can you just talk for a moment about some of the unexpected connections that we have seen within the team of five? Well, I think George W. Bush and Michelle Obama are a great example of that. You know, two very different people, um, uh, different parties, different genders, different races. I mean, everything you could think of. They, they were raised in different parts of the country. But they, they just get along, and they have fun with each other, and they joke with each other. And, uh, you know, she appreciates, appreciates Bush's sense of humor um, but so the famous photo of Bush kind of giving Michelle Obama a bear hug at the uh, opening of the African-American History Museum here in D.C. is uh, something that people point to as a sign of this close friendship. But I will also say that, and not to be cynical about it, but I've been told by people around Bush that he does this also to make a point. He wants to make sure that the cameras see this, that people see this that not everything has to be as partisan um, as it's become. And I think part of it is a bit of a PR move, too. Not that their friendship isn't genuine, but I think both of them talk about it so freely 
that there's something behind that. Right. And there's a there's a significance yeah. beyond the friendship itself. The the, the yeah. significance for them is what it represents, and it's something that we need now more than ever. Yes, absolutely. We want to see that. You know. Um, I think that we, you know, there was a, a story out today that President Trump is not going to be inviting President Obama to um, the, his portrait unveiling at the White House. And that's something that we haven't seen in modern times either. We always see uh, the former president coming back to the White House uh, so that they can be there for a little ceremony. It's just, a, it's just protocol. Um, and usually the sitting president says something nice about them, as Obama did with Bush 43, George W. Bush. And uh, we're not going to see that reportedly this time around um, because of just all of the negativity. I, we have never seen anything quite like this in sort of the daily back and forth on Twitter and whatnot. And so I think the media is partly is a big part of this. I mean, who knows? Maybe John Adams and Thomas Jefferson would have been going after each other on on cable news or something. I don't know. But um, it seems that we've reached a new level of that hmm. bitter partisanship. Right. One of the things you talk about in your book is the kind of occasions which will draw all of the ex-presidents together uh, in, in one place, in one room at the same time. And And, of course, it is an incredibly stirring sight uh, when we do see these rare occasions where they converge and are together uh, on one platform or seated together in one church pew at the National Cathedral or whatever it might be. Uh, Explain to our listeners those occasions when our ex-presidents do come together, if uh, health and circumstances permit. Well, you know, they they often come together, as you say, it's it's usually in very formal settings. So uh, state funerals, as George H.W. Bush's funeral shows, uh, you had President Trump there and all the other um, living uh, former presidents and first ladies. And uh, it's something that, and, and presidential library openings, those are the two, which is why I asked President Trump if he would be going to Obama's library opening, um, because we're used to seeing the former, the formers, as they're called, you know, sitting on a platform next to each other. And, and I think it's, a, as you say, a reassuring site for people. But it's also really interesting just as, a, as an American, because we associate these people with different decades in our lives, right? So when you would see... Um, Reagan sitting next to to Ford and Carter, it kind of would bring back memories in your life personally. I mean, there's something very emotional that I think we tie to these presidents and first ladies. And so, you know, they're not necessarily buddies. They don't uh, text each other and call each other all the time, although Bush 43 and Clinton do have a relationship where they do speak and help each other. But it's about respecting the office of the presidency, and that is one of those unspoken rules. And respecting each other, even if they disagree with each other. Hmm. Um, You have already briefly mentioned the fact that uh, of these ex-presidents, it is President Jimmy Carter who has perhaps been, shall we say, maybe the I was going to say the most careless with the rules, but I don't think it's carelessness. I think uh, he is making, has made some deliberate choices in terms of when he has uh, spoken out versus when he has refrained from speaking out. Uh, to, to what extent has he, in fact, 
been out of step with his colleagues in this respect? Oh, he is completely out of step with his colleagues in many ways. You know, there was a funny scene at um, George W. Bush's presidential library opening where Jimmy Carter leaned over and said to him, "I, you know, I've, I've been a little rough on you about the war in Iraq. You know, I'm sorry. And Bush said, oh, hush, you know, um, it's fine. And that says a lot. Um, but over history, you know, Carter um, went to Haiti when Clinton was in office um, and tried to uh, broker a deal to get the democratically elected president uh, in office and to replace someone that was there in a military coup. I mean, he, he is a freelancing deal maker. He goes, he went to North Korea when Clinton was in office also and tried to negotiate a nuclear deal there, which held for a time. I mean, he is desperate to be involved in uh, foreign policy, and we see his great work with the Carter Center where he and Rosalind Carter monitor um, elections around the world, and they've done incredible work um, eradicating disease. I mean, they have amazing, astounding energy, and it's that restlessness that I wanted to try to capture that I think Jimmy Carter feels. And then also the resentment that Bill Clinton felt because Jimmy Carter, you know, um, I think it was at Haiti and North Korea he brought a CNN crew, but I describe it in the book. He brought this crew with him. He did a TV interview for CNN before he ever fully briefed President Clinton on his trip. And that's really not uh, okay. Like, you can't be an emissary of the United States, talk to a foreign leader, and then do a TV interview before you tell the president what uh, happened. And they got into a big screaming match in the Oval Office about it. Um, so I think that's really dramatic. And I think the tension there is really fascinating. Hmm. Uh, one of the uh, things I appreciate about your book is many small little details that often go largely unnoticed or maybe not completely understood. I really appreciated the story that you told about the National Day of Prayer service at the uh, National Cathedral uh, just days after 9-11. And uh, then-President uh, Bush was uh, there, of course, in that front front pew with Laura, and uh, and... His predecessor was there, uh, Bill Clinton and his wife, uh, Hillary, and then his father, uh, President H.W. Bush, and his wife. Uh, I want you to tell our listeners the story of the order in which they were seated in that pew and uh, the the beautiful sensitivity that was shown uh, by one of those ex-presidents for another in that moment. Yeah, it's a basic. They sit next to each other in these kinds of formal events according to the years they were in office. So uh, George W. Bush and Laura Bush were sitting next to uh, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton. Um, And then Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton were sitting next to George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush. And as you say, this was days after 9-11, a huge traumatic moment in our country, and Bush had the weight of the world on his shoulders. And his father asked, the Clintons, if they wouldn't mind switching seats so that he and Barbara could sit next to their son. And um, the Clintons, you know, of of course, obliged and moved over, and Bush Sr. and Barbara Bush sat next to um, their son and daughter-in-law, and he reached over and and put his uh, hand out to his son to kind of offer him moral support. And um, I think that's a wonderful visual of them all 
being their unified Democrat Republican uh, for the country. Hmm. Ultimately, the story is of whether or not ex-presidents can play a role and find meaning. And uh, this plays out differently for different ex-presidents. But I think that's one of the most touching stories about this is how someone who for a time was the most powerful person in the free world, uh, when they are no longer uh, in that position, what does life mean for them? And what kind of meaning can they have in the world? Just uh, maybe we could close with a thought about how these various men have uh, sought to, to, to matter, even in the years when they are no longer president. I think one thing that is really wonderful about them is that they do care about um, their country. They also care about preserving their legacies. But there was a uh, a story that after President Trump's election, uh, President Clinton called uh, George W. Bush and said, you know, you have to make sure that they keep PEPFAR in place. And PEPFAR was Bush's um, AIDS program that's been widely praised by Democrats and Republicans in Africa. Um, And uh, that's a moment, and Trump did keep it. Uh, That's a moment where I think that, you know, you have have two former presidents really acting as a team saying this is, I, I think you need to make sure that this part of your legacy never dies, and we need to preserve that. And um, I think that just says a lot about them as a team. I don't think they're a team in the sense that they all, you know, text and call each other. I think they're a team in the more, um, you know, general sense that they all believe in this country and they all respect each other and uh, and the rules of this President's Club. There are only four people in the world alive who know what the weight of this responsibility is. So I think that's... Um, a really profound thing. Right. I think it is maybe President Obama, you quote, is saying that the office is incredibly humbling. That is to be president, to bear that weight. And uh, and maybe that's part of what holds these ex-presidents together as well, is that all of them, to one extent or another, have been humbled by the office as they sought to do the best job that they possibly could. And, uh, and, and one typically gains grace uh, from humility. So at any rate, it's a beautiful story told so well in your wonderful book, Team of Five, The President's Club in the Age of Trump, published by HarperCollins. Kate Anderson Brower, congratulations on a marvelous book, and thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. Thank you for such a thoughtful interview. I appreciate it.